Ezekiel chapter 38. Let's read the word together. Ezekiel 38, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are all with them all, are with them, all of them, with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tagarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered around you, and be a guard for them. Father, we just thank you tonight, and as we gather here in your name, it is amazing grace that enables us to see. Lord, it is your amazing grace that enables us to see who you are. It's your amazing grace that has enabled us to see what you've done for us. It's your amazing grace, Lord, that helps us to, even in so small a way, to comprehend the awesome salvation you have brought to our lives. And Lord, now we lean upon your awesome grace, that amazing grace to open up your word to us because you've not left us orphans. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. And Lord, through these things, we are able to understand better not only who you are, but what it is that you're doing. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And give us the attention that we need to have tonight as we focus on you. Because we're here to praise you. We're here to praise you with our lives by allowing you to change us and transform us and make us into the people that you have ordained for us to be. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. And it's in his holy name we all pray. God's people prayed. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. Well, I'm going to start out, Kevin, take no offense. I'm going to make two corrections that Kevin made, okay? That's something he said. Number one, uh, whether or not this will be a treat tonight remains to be seen, okay? <laughs> the second thing is, and I know Rob told you to do this, to call us Calvary Chapel of Hagerstown, but we're not. We're Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley, all right? And so I teased Rob. I said, we picked that name having no idea that somebody would be down here planting a church in Cumberland, Maryland. And uh, he keeps saying he should change it. It's just too hard to do that. So you guys got to live with yours and we'll live with ours. And people will get us confused and they'll show up at each other's churches and that'll be great. But it is, uh, it is a blessing to uh, be here tonight. And I kind of asked Rob tonight how long I could teach. And he said, um, you know, however long I want to go. And I think that was probably a big mistake because he... He's not used to hearing me teach on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. I tend to go very long. But I did want to do something special with you guys tonight. I thought this was a great opportunity, you know, we gather like this. And, and it's kind of neat because Rob told me where you guys are on Sunday morning, the book of Revelation, right? How far into it are you right now? Chapter 2. All right. So you're just breaking into it. It's going to get great. And how many of you guys have studied the book of Revelation before? A few of you. How many of you, be honest, are intimidated by the book of Revelation? Don't be afraid because I'm going to raise my hand, okay? It's really not as hard as it seems. And, and for a lot of us, the issue really isn't that the book is intimidating, but it's that we have a hard time understanding what God is doing and to see it from that perspective. And I don't know about you, but before I came to Calvary Chapel, and I've been in Calvary Chapel since 1998, and the group of churches that I was with before that over the years, I'm a, I'm a former military guy, I'm retired from the Army, and over the years as we'd move around, we, we participate in some churches and and, and I'll tell you, prophecy was just something that everybody kind of acknowledged existed in the scriptures, but nobody really talked much about. 
And, and maybe it was for that reason. Maybe some of their pastors were just plain intimidated by it themselves. But I also think that there's a mistake that gets made. And the mistake is that we somehow think that prophecy really has no practical value to our lives. Well, I know that Rob is teaching you different than that. And I know that you're going to find, as you move your way through the book of Revelation, that there is so much practical application that comes from your understanding of the prophetic things that God has given us in his word. You know, isn't it awesome that we serve a God who can see everything? He knows the plan he's laid out, and then he chooses at points in time to enter into history and to reveal things to his people. And he's done that in the word of God. And when we begin to see that, we understand he's given us bits and pieces that, yes, just like Daniel, you know, Daniel, when he got his prophecies, he was told some of it's sealed up to the end times. Well, you know, some of that's being unlocked today because we're seeing things that Daniel never could have comprehended in his time. But it tells us the awesomeness of the God that we serve. And that alone is, is worth, it's worth more than all the gold in the earth. Because I have to tell you, the more I realize how God intervenes like that, the more I understand what he has told us prophetically that is coming true or has come true in the past, that it causes me to worship him even more and to understand the reality of who he is and how engaged he is in our history. You know, somebody once coined the phrase, you know, history is really his story. And, and I think we need to approach everything from that perspective. You know, history is God's story being written and worked out for mankind as he brings redemption to pass. So I think there's a lot of valuable things that we get from prophecy. And, and prophecy more than that is just that it should spur us to an understanding that the Lord's coming back. Jesus is coming back. I, I don't know about you. But you'd almost have to have your head in the sand not to look at current events and realize that, wow, read Matthew. I mean, read Matthew 24. Look at what it says. As you guys are moving your way through Revelation, you're going to see things that you're going to go, wow, I see these kinds of things shaping up and taking effect. Now, look, we don't have to start guessing when things are going to happen. That's a, that's a big mistake, and people have made that over the years. I remember there was a guy back in the old days, he wrote a book, uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 88. Well, Jesus didn't come back in 88, but he had a fortune off the book he sold. And unfortunately, that's a lot what you get going on, isn't it? People just, you know, they're trying to sensationalize. And as we approach prophecy, we should never sensationalize it, nor should we read into it any more than it's really given to us. Now, tonight, I'm going to take you through some prophecy. A little bit different than what, what uh, your pastor's doing, but it complements, I think, very well to where you guys are going. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I really try not to read more into the passage than's there. However, there are times when I will draw connections for you. As I do that, I will make clear to you, this is just a connection that I'm seeing. I'm not telling you that scripture is saying that, but boy, isn't this strange how this is taking place in light of where this is. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but let's not get so focused on that that we get some rigid formula out of this that it's going to happen this way or that way. And that's another mistake people have made. They formulize, you know, the prophecies. And the moment you do that, you're going to put God in a box. And then the moment he doesn't work the way you want him to do, you know, you're going to have some of your confidence undermined. You know, I remember when I first got saved, uh, and, and back in the 70s, there was, there was a strong discussion of end-time events. And, you know, in the little church that I had been attending at the time, and everybody was talking about what would the mark of the beast be? You know, first of all, I don't believe we'll be here to see the mark of the beast. That's my reading of Scripture. I know there are people, good people in the churches that, that disagree with that, but I could make a case for that. I know Pastor Rob is going to do that for you guys, but I don't think we'll be here to see that. 
But at the same time, it is kind of curious, isn't it? So we look around at things that are going on. Well, at that time, the big deal was the barcodes. And they were making movies like that. Have you ever seen some of those B-rated movies that they made Christian ones? They're pretty geeky. But, you know, they, they had the guy with the barcode on his head and on his forehand and everything. And, of course, we were all going through grocery stores looking at everything because there's numbers under there. And if the number had a 666 under the barcode, well, I'm not buying that can of soup. You know, and so all this crazy kind of stuff. And now here we are at this time in history, and what are we seeing? We see microchip implantations, you know. We see that going. There's a company called Verichip that literally is creating chips that they believe they can put all your data onto it, not just your medical, that's where it would be, but financial and everything else, and then insert that. Is that the mark of the beast? I don't know. We don't know what the next turn of technology will be. We don't have an idea. And I think that's my point I'm making to you tonight. If we fix ourselves in that this is going to be the absolute flow, we're going to make a mistake. But God does give us a flow of certain events in the word. So he's given us a framework that we can absolutely build upon. And that's what we're going to do a little bit tonight. So if you'll bear with me this evening for the four hours I'm going to teach. Um, we, you're laughing. You ought to come up to our fellowship sometime. They would not laugh with you. So, um, no, I, I, this is what I want to do tonight is just have a little prophecy conference. Okay, that's what we're going to do. This is a one night hour-long prophecy conference. And I want to take you to this passage in Ezekiel 38 because I believe that this is something that we may be very close um, to seeing occur, if we're even here to see it occur. Before we move into that, let me tell you just an overview of this. This chapter, chapter 38, chapter 39, gives us a battle that has never occurred in Israel's history has never occurred. All scholars agree that this is something that has never taken place. So it's future. Everybody knows it's prophetic. It gives us a bunch of names that we don't relate to who are going to be involved in it, but I think with a little bit of digging, it's not too hard to figure out who they are, and I'm going to share that with you tonight. It's interesting that the chapter before this in chapter 37 is the one that many of you know probably from your Sunday school days, the Valley of Dry Bones. You know, we used to sing songs about it, you know. The Valley of Dry Bones. And a lot of people make all kinds of applications to how God just revives us. And, you know, when we get saved and we go from bones to flesh, you know, in him. And that's all fine. I don't want to take away from that. But that's not what that particular chapter is talking about. It's actually talking about the restoration of God's people, Israel, which has happened. It's absolutely occurred exactly as chapter 37 has said. Now, chapter 38 follows some time after the resurrection of God's people. You know, Israel is a nation that has defied all historical records and logic. There's been no other nation in the history of the world that has ever gone off the scene of human history completely being absorbed by all the cultures that reemerges to form its own country again and to fall back into place. Israel has. 2,000 years, think about that. 2,000 years off the scene and suddenly in a midnight decision, you know, a midnight decision by a guy who wasn't even supposed to be the president of the United States, who ends up in there because Franklin Delano Roosevelt dies, and he ends up in place, and oh, by the way, FDR's view of Israel was not strong. He had no heart for, the, for, for an Israel state of any kind. He was more favorable to, the, to, to uh, Saudi Arabia and the Arab states in that region, but a guy he hardly ever spoke to in his administration, who wasn't even there in the initial terms, who ends up becoming his vice president, Harry Truman, grew up in a little Baptist church in Kansas, 
with his mother talking about prophecy with a Sunday school teacher who prophesied over him when he was very young and said, one day you will help God's people restore the nation. And he did. On a midnight decision, he goes with it against all of the administration that was saying, don't do it. Don't do it. It's going to cause conflict. Don't do it. It has caused conflict. But yet it was God's timing. God said it was going to happen, that it had to happen, and he used him to do it. It's interesting, but on the back end of that decision, Harry Truman was later honored by a number of Jewish organizations that one of them, they drew the parallel between him and Cyrus, and he stood up and he said, I'm Cyrus. Not, you know, I'm not reincarnated, but he's just saying, yes, I'm Cyrus. Remember, Cyrus was the one that was prophesied long before he ever lived by Isaiah, who said that he would release God's people from Babylonian captivity, which he did. Cyrus released them, and Cyrus knew those scriptures, and he saw his name and knew, and he releases them to go back. And so Harry Truman did that. And that's what chapter 37 really gives us is the restoration of the nation of Israel. But chapter 38 turns the corner now. And chapter 38 begins to talk about a battle. Now, before we discuss this battle, let me just tell you that there are three end-time battles described in Scripture. And, and if you don't understand this, you're going to get a little bit confused. But in end-time Scripture, the, there's this battle in chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. And then in Revelation chapter 16 and chapter 19, which you guys will be covering, there is the battle of Armageddon that takes place. And then in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, there is the battle that takes place at the end of the millennial reign of Christ on the earth when he completely subdues Satan and everything is finished at that point. Now, now a lot of people have wrongly concluded that Ezekiel 38, the one we're going to look at tonight, they confuse that with the battle of Armageddon. And there's some clear differences, I think, that distinguish these two battles that you ought to be aware of as to why they're different. First of all, the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation involves the whole world. It involves the whole world. Revelation 16 tells us that there are three spirits who are sent to gather the whole world for the Battle of Armageddon. But the battle that we're looking at here in Ezekiel 38 and 39 tonight, it's not a worldwide battle. Oh, it doesn't mean there aren't players from the world that are involved. We live in a very interconnected world, but this is not a world war. This is a regional war of a sort that, that involves a limited number of nations who form an alliance in order to attack and invade Israel. So that's one of the differences. Second difference, the Battle of Armageddon describes being affected, you know, it affects all the planet. It, it affects you know, people breaking out with sores and diseases and all sorts of things around. Famine comes out of it. All sorts of things take place as a result of the Battle of Armageddon. But the battle here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we don't find any mention, very little, of any kind of extenuating details to the world. There are a few, but not on the scale that we see with Armageddon. And the effects that described here in the chapters we're looking at are really regional in, in a sense. Difference, third difference, the Battle of Armageddon, we find reference to the seas being turned to, to blood and the Euphrates River being dried up to make way for the invasion of the kings of the east and of the sun and moon and stars refusing to shine. Might I note when we say the kings of the east, you know, clearing away for their pathway, we see the kings of the east rising today, don't we? China, despite what's happening in their economy right now. Um, you know, oftentimes those kind of economic implosions propel nations into all sorts of things that are unanticipated. And we, d we can't doubt what, what China is now capable of in her desire for some global domination. 
And so, you know, that's the battle of Armageddon where they show up. But here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we don't find any mention of those kinds of details. In fact, there is no indication whatsoever that the kings of the east are, are even involved in this battle. So there's a difference. Uh, another difference, number four, the battle of Armageddon, we, we find this clear reference to Christ's involvement. And, and the war begins between competing nations there's all kinds of stuff taking place between the nations, but Jesus becomes the focus as he sets foot physically on the earth. He sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. And in that moment, in fact, it tells us in Scripture that the Mount of Olives will be split in two and a river will flow out. But as he steps onto that mountain, those armies that are engaging, however they get word, they realize that's taken place. And instead of fighting one another, you know the old expression, sometimes... You know, things can make things strange bedfellows. Suddenly, ones who are warring enemies begin to turn towards Jesus. And he's the focus of it. But when we look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's no mention of Messiah whatsoever. No mention of Messiah, no hint of Messiah in these chapters. Another difference, the Battle of Armageddon involves Antichrist. Clearly involves the Antichrist. But the Battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 involves this, this person who's identified as Gog with no mention, even a hint, of Antichrist being present or involved. Now, some people would say, well, maybe he's God. No, I think as you look at the chapters, you'll see that, that he's very different than who Antichrist is in terms of what he's focused on, what he wants, what he's trying to accomplish. Completely different. Antichrist is not present. And finally, number six, the, the period surrounding Armageddon is a time when Israel will be under siege and persecution by the Antichrist. And, and in fact, they're going to be fleeing from him. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's during the period of the tribulation. But the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, the invading forces come down on Israel as she is dwelling in relative peace and safety. Completely different description that we're given in this moment. And you also can't take the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and... and fit it into that final battle described in Revelation 20, which some people try to do. They, they believe that they're the same. You know, the one when Jesus comes back, you know, not at, at the end of his millennial reign, that thousand-year reign on the earth. They confuse that end battle because they see some of the same names that are being described here. I would argue that the reason they see some of the same names is because the players in this one are not totally destroyed. They're, they're rendered ineffective. They, they suffer great losses in the battle here in Ezekiel, but they're not totally decimated. And a period of time is going to occur between this battle and the time of that final battle that will take place. And nations can rebuild during that time and strengthen again. So it could be that. It could also simply be that these titles are given to other players because they have that same spirit about them when it's taking place. But I think as you look through this, you realize these are clearly not the same battles that we're dealing with here in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So let's go to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, we may not get through the whole thing. I would really like to at least get you through the players tonight, and we'll see what kind of time we have after that. But we'll move our way through the players because I think that alone will convince you that we are very close to seeing this, this particular prophecy play out. Let's look at verse 1. It tells us, now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, remember this, when somebody says that, that's prophecy, right? You're like, you know, the, the word of the Lord came to me saying, and so I'm supposed to share that with you is what Ezekiel's saying. Now, think about this for a moment. If, if you do have an aversion to prophecy or see it as worthless, do you know that nearly one-third of the Bible is prophetic? Do you realize that nearly one-third, one, what, one of every three scriptures, if you were to do it that way, is really a prophetic scripture? 
Now, now some would say, well, I know there's prophecy in the Bible, but it's about fulfilled prophecy. No, there, there's portions of prophecy that have not clearly not been fulfilled. Now, if God saw fit to make one-third of this Bible that we all treasure, and then he turns to us and he says, all of Scripture, <laughs> all of Scripture is given for our edification, for our building up, for our strengthening, for our ability to do the work that God has called us to, then somehow we must be able to realize that this is as equally as important as, as some of the more practical passages that we look at. And we do got to be careful. You know, if you come to prophecy like many people do just to get some gee whiz facts, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. You know, if you just, there, there's a group of Christians today in Christianity that just, they, they hover on prophecy. Every time you turn around, they're so engaged in prophecy. And it's not because they're trying to grow. It's just because they're fascinated by it. Look, I'm fascinated by prophecy, but it's worthless to me if I don't grow. It's worthless to me if it doesn't purify my heart. It's worthless to me if it doesn't make me long for the coming of my Savior. And that's what it does. It makes me long for the coming of my Savior, that I could be living in a time or the generation when he could return. And oh, what that does for my heart to live for him. What that does for me to count the cost of service for him to say, you know what, maybe some days my service for Christ, and I'm not just talking about being a pastor, I'm talking about long before I was a pastor, but you know what, maybe the cost that it's costing me to do that, the time it's taking away, the effort that's required to do that is worth it because I may be very close to the finish line. So close to the finish line. You know, it could happen before we're done now. I show this neat little video. I'm going to ruin it for you if he ever shows it to you. But there's this neat little video. Everybody's sitting in church and they're worshiping. And a pastor gets up and he says, let's open our Bibles. I want to talk about the rap. And before he finishes, there's this boom that goes off. And most of the people are missing, with the exception of a few still sitting in there, looking around. Where'd everybody go? And that always stuns our folks when I show that. But I do it to make the point. That's how it's going to happen. Not the explosion, but that quickly. The scripture tell us, in the twinkling of an eye, that could happen in any second. Could happen today, could happen tomorrow, could happen before we're finished here tonight. And then we'll be standing before our Lord. What are the words we want to hear? I want to hear, well done, that good and faithful servant. I know there's enough stuff that, that I'm losing reward for in my life. I know that. You know, I understand that. I especially understand that as a teacher. I'd like to look at you and tell you that I don't botch things up when I teach. I do. You know, I do. And I understand I'm held to a higher standard, and, but I, I rest in Christ's grace, yet I know that at times if I've done it because of my own willful stupidity or if I sin and I engage in things out of my own willfulness, that there's a loss of reward that's taking place. But yet at the same time, I can still live, and, and, and the reward that he still will have waiting for me, if I've invested in him, if I've focused my life on him, I've made my life about him, will still be so great that it'll still outweigh the other. And I want that. I don't know about you, but I want that more desperately. As I'm watching the news and seeing the things happen, the more I'm tuning out the world and tuning in Jesus. And just say, man, use me. Just use me. We're running the race and we're getting close. Third of the book, prophecy. And it goes on in verse 2. It says, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog and Prince of Rosh and Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him. Now, God begins to describe a coalition of nations that will one day stage this invasion against Israel. And here he gives the names of several of these players. You'll note them. Gog, Magog, Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Now, while all of the names will describe geographical regions of the world, nations, if you will, and I would argue, and I'm going to be very careful about using nations, but if I do use the word nations, please understand that many of these players are not nations as we think today. I, if I speak, let's say, of Russia 
it, it may encompass more of the borders than, than we see today of what Russia is, but would have encompassed land that the Russians now occupy. Do you understand what I just meant by that? So it could be a wider, it's more regional than it is a specific nation as we know it in its present existence at this moment. And, and we know that it's changing, don't we? I mean, Russia's absorbing against, you know, they're working on, they've absorbed part of the Ukraine, who knows where they want to go next. So, you know, the, the nations are changing their format and shape as time goes by, so keep that in mind. But let's begin, because there's one name on this list that I would argue is the exception to this regional kind of identification. And the one that's the exception is the first one when he says Gog. You see, most Bible scholars who study prophecy, they believe that this isn't a title of a nation, but rather it's the title of a leader of a nation who seems also to have leadership over several other nations or regional entities. He has authority over, he controls Rosh and Meshach and Tubal, and he seems to be the leader of the nation called Magog. Read that again. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. Do you see that? The prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, a prince exercises some control or authority, and that's the point, over these other nations. And then it says prophesy against him. So who are these nations that he controls? Well, first of all, let's talk about the nation that he's from, Magog. You know what scholars tell us about Magog? The Greek historian Herodotus identified Magog as the land of the Scythians. The land of the Scythians, as did Josephus in his works that he wrote, one of his books, Antiquities, he points that out. And the historical record tells us that the Scythians migrated from Central Asia to Southern Russia in the 8th to the 7th century, somewhere in that time frame B.C. Okay, remember we count backwards in the B.C. time frame. So from the 8th to 7th century, they were making their migration into that region today that we would see as southern Russia. Now, if you were to go back to Genesis 10, in Genesis 10, there are people called ethnologists that look at that because that's the table of nations. It talks about Noah's sons after the flood and where they went and, and their sons and how they settled. Well, if you look at the table of nations, scholars tell us that in that passage, Magog, along with Meshach and Tubal, are identified as the sons of Japheth. That's Noah's son. And ethnologists tell us that after the flood that the Japhethites migrated northward into the regions beyond the Caspian and the Black Seas to the area we know today as southern Russia and central Asia, or what we would identify as Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, to uh, Turkmenistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and all those stands, okay? So that region of the world, and that aligns itself with what Josephus told us. So Russia, southern Russia region, that Eurasia region would be Magog. Rosh, here's what scholars tell us about Rosh. Jacinius, who is the father of modern-day lexicography, that's the science and art of compiling of Hebrew lexicons. Doesn't that sound like a lot of fun, huh? I want to sign me up to do that. But he did a study of the 10th century Byzantine writers, and he concluded that Rosh settled in modern-day Russia. That Rosh settled in modern-day Russia, and he concluded this in 1846. Now listen. You will read books, you will hear guys say, uh, some teachers say who teach prophecy that Rosh, well, Rosh is a, a, is a word for Russia. That may or may not be true. That may or may not be true. But it definitely is identifying itself with a region of the world that is today parts of Russia. So clearly the connection is there. Meshach and Tubal. Scholars tell us uh, Herodotus, again going back to his writings around 450 B.C., right after the time of Ezekiel, 
right after the time of Ezekiel. In his book called Histories, he associates these names with a group of people in the mountains southeast of the Black Sea, which would be, anybody know? Modern-day Turkey. It would be modern-day Turkey or that region of the world. Josephus, in his book Antiquities, also supports that view by specifically identifying Meshech as the city of Cappadocia, which is part of north-central Turkey. So you see, they're all aligning up with the same idea. Other reliable sources associate Tubal with Cappadocia as well. And so this also fits with what ethnologists tell us from chapter 10, again, of Japheth's sons, because Japheth's sons, Meshach and Tubal, that was his sons, as they migrated to that region of the world. And we're therefore in safe ground to assume that Meshach and Tubal as being part of what is today the modern nation of Turkey. It's the region that Turkey today, uh, to most degree, controls. So clearly it appears that as you look at this, that these nations, these regions, will in the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy uh, be under God's sphere of influence and control. Now, as we think about that, I believe that just from this initial list of players, we can see the table being set today for these prophetic events to occur. Do you? Because it's here. It's here in front of us today. And I don't know, you know, and I want to be very careful with this, I don't know if Vladimir Putin is Gog. Um, if you were to ask me my personal opinion, I'd say he's a prime candidate for it based on his interests and his sphere of control that he's seeking to do. It's interesting, this is just my speculation, but how many of you guys followed all those computer glitches yesterday? China, the United States, all the, the, the United Airlines shut down, Wall Street shut down. Um, there was something else, it was, um, do you remember Matt? There was something else got hit yesterday. China got hit, and everybody said they were all independent issues. No, no big conspiracy, nothing there. I have a theory. My theory is that Putin did it. I have a theory that the Russians are playing around with it and doing their thing. So I don't know. I don't know. I'll leave it at that. But let's just say this. He may or may not be, but one day there will be a Putin-like figure who will come along and he will fill this role as Gog. This is kind of like we do with Antichrist, isn't it? We, I hope you don't walk around and say, that guy is the Antichrist. Now, I've said that about people I didn't like before. That guy is the Antichrist. I probably had people say it about me. But you know what? We don't know. We're never going to know that, you know, because we're going to be too busy worshiping Jesus when he's identified. But in the same way that we do that, what, what we can say is that, you know, what, that person has the spirit of Antichrist going on. I see the earmarks of Antichrist, and, and certainly they could fill that bill, but I don't, I don't know whether they are. It's not my job to pick out who is and who isn't. Name picking just does us no good. It's a waste of time. But to understand the characteristics of those that fill these roles is important. Because the scripture is giving it to us. It's telling us what their motives are, what their modus of operandi are, what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish that's against God. And so as we begin to see various people in the world and we see them exerting their control, as Vladimir Putin does today, we can look and say, well, he may not be Gog, but he certainly is a Gog-like figure. And he's beginning to move down the road that Gog will one day, if he's not Gog, will one day come and fill and complete in this world to fulfill the role that he's been given to play in all of this. Now, a lot of the players, if you think about how things are developing today, a lot of the players are, are, that we've just looked at are a part of, you know, what, what was once part of the former Soviet Union, which Putin is clearly seeking to influence, you know, over again. We see him regathering as much as he can. I, we don't have time for the articles tonight. When I did this study with my fellowship, this went on for almost four weeks, just so you know that. So... But I had one article that talks about Chechnya pledging its support back to Russia. 
And so we even see, even where he's not doing it with force, that he's gaining it through influence. And he's getting a lot of these nations that, that really comprise these areas that are being discussed here in Ezekiel. He's exerting influence and bringing them into the basket along with him. I mean, consider these, you know, as you look at it. I mean, Russia itself is setting up that sphere of influence, setting herself up uh, for her role in all of this. Here's some headlines. Uh, Putin focuses on economic ties during Turkey visit. You know, it's interesting. I've taught this passage um, to our congregation. We've been around now about 14 years. And over those 14 years, I've probably taught it three times. And in the times that I've taught this passage, I can honestly tell you that I have never taught it as I did this past October. It was, I was literally opening up the papers and it was unfolding in front. I used to have to dig for articles and connections just to give as illustrations. I'd just open up the paper and right there it was. It'd be right in front of me. And so we do see these things. But as I've taught it over the years, Turkey was a wild card because Turkey's part of NATO. Turkey's our friend. Turkey's always been an ally of Israel, stood up for them. And, but look what's happened in the last couple of years. Uh, you remember the, the, um, when the Turks went in and they, the, um, the Israelis sent in those raids onto those ships because they believed there were munitions on. They were Turkish ships. And they sent in, and then there were people killed in that process. After that event, Turkey began to turn very visibly on Israel. In the process, Turkey has elected a guy to office who is very radical in his Islamic beliefs. He's now calling for the destruction and recapturing of Jerusalem. We wouldn't even have thought that three or four or five years ago. But here it is right in front of us. Turkey's coming into the basket. Turkey's coming into the fold. And we shouldn't be surprised because the scriptures teach us that these things will come to pass. Another headline, animosity for the West drives Erdogan and Putin closer. Erdogan is the president of Turkey and Putin, of course, in Russia. It's driving them together. Isn't that interesting? You know, Gog, uh, the, the leader of Magog, the Russian peoples in that region, suddenly beginning to draw close with the Turks. Uh, Turkey's also posturing herself for radical changes. Uh, another headline, Erdogan to chair cabinet in unprecedented move, Turkish president expands powers aims to rewrite the Constitution after parliamentary elections. That was just back in December of 2014. And essentially, he will secure a position for himself as the leader of Turkey that will run through, I believe the estimate was 2024. Absolute power, absolute power that he's trying to obtain for himself. Clearly, a stage is being set with these players. So let's move on because there's going to be more. Look at verse 3. And say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Now, I want you to note two things here. First of all, what's about to happen isn't something that these nations come up with on their own, but it's the direct plan of God. It's the direct plan of God. He says it very clearly. I will turn you around. I will do this. I will turn you around. I will put, I like this, and remember this phrase, I will put hooks into your jaws. I will lead you out. Now, before I talk about that, let me just say this, because this always raises our question in our minds. Does this imply that God is the author of evil? If he's ordained for these nations to come against what we're going to find his people, Israel, is God the author of evil? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God will simply allow the evil that exists in men's hearts to play out so that he can take the evil that men have done and turn it around for his glory 
and for the benefit of his people in the end. You know, there are today in our world, and we still are blessed in this sense. I know we're saying persecution may be coming to America, and it may very well be, you know. I sometimes, my wife and I talk, and I said, you know, am I prepared? You know, one day, could I finish out my life, or before the Lord comes, could I be sitting in a prison cell? Well, 15 years ago, I probably would have thought that was unthinkable. Today, I say it's 50-50. It's 50-50. But you know what? We don't see anything on the scale that's taking place around the world. We don't see anything on the scale that we see in places like the Middle East where ISIS is beheading people because of their Christian faith. And as we look at that, we can say, why would God allow that? Why would he allow it? Because the evil is in men's hearts and he's allowing it to play out. But look, in the end, what is coming out of this, there's a witness. There are people being born to Christ through the death of believers. There was a story, I just heard this the other day, of one of those that were murdered on the beach um, in North Africa that ISIS executed. One of those guys in that big group was not a Christian. He was a Muslim. And when they got to him and they said, will you declare Allah alone? And he was a Muslim at that moment, but he looked over and he said, no, I choose to serve the God that they served, who had just been executed. Is it worth that? Is it worth God allowing evil to play out for a soul to be saved? Is it worth God allowing evil to do run its course in order for better things to come forth from it? I would argue it is. It absolutely is. And so we have to understand that God will allow the things that are in people's hearts, and yet at the same time, he has a plan that he's turning their evil on its head before it's all done. And he'll do it in this case. And I think that reality should give us hope. It tells us no matter how dark events might be, God's still in absolute control. How about just the mundane stuff of your lives? I mean, I don't know how many of you have gone through dark times. Sometimes I call our fellowship the fellowship of darkness, not in an evil sense, but because we just have so many people that are living Job-like lives, just tragedies befalling them, illnesses and deaths in the family and just uh, uh, financial difficulties, and you see this, but you know what? They are so happy in the middle of it. They're so happy in the middle of it. I, I, my best friend just died this year. I buried him. My golfing buddy, I go golfing. It's ministry, trust me. But I go golfing on Mondays with him for years, and, and he died suddenly from cancer. And I, I did the service for his wife, for him. And I have never seen a woman as joyous as she would. And she looked at as like she was. She looked at me and she said, I don't understand this. She said, I know I want to be sad, but she said, I can't be. And I said, why is that? She said, because I just feel like in the middle of this darkness, God still got this. He's doing this. And since then, we've watched that play out in our life. And I've seen that in so many people's lives. But you see, we have to have this understanding that sometimes bad things can take place. But we have a God who's aware when any of those circumstances, no matter how horrendous they are, pass into our lives. And he's going to work those things if we will allow him to do that. If we will not stand in the way and, and begin to protest or, or try to subvert what it is he's doing. And sometimes that's exactly what we try to do. We try to subvert. We try to change the situation ourselves. That doesn't mean we need to go along with everything or that God doesn't want us to do some things in the midst of it. But, but do we seek his face first or do we just do what we think will take away the pain? You can take away the pain and never allow God to bring the lesson or the blessing that he really wants to bring out of that situation. 
And so I think as we look at something like this, it gives us hope. And secondly, it tells us that everything that happens is in the timing of his choosing, not based on the timing of men. You know, when you think about this with, with Rosh, you know, in Russia, you know, nothing more explains this concept than this prophecy because, you know, Russia is one day going to move, just as it's outlined here. She's one day going to move, but the timing of that move is going to be God's. It's going to be up to God on the day and the hour, and he knows when it is, and he'll just say, it's time. That hook's in your mouth, and I want you to go. You know, Russia has long been poised to invade Israel for a long time. You know, in the military, we knew that. When I was stationed in Europe, we knew that there were two fronts. They, he was coming, you know, the Russians would come into Western Europe, and they would swing into the Middle East. And that the Russians were viewed there. You know, Russia and the 1982 uh, Israeli invasion of Lebanon, when, Israeli, when the Israelis went into Lebanon in 1982, reliable intelligence tells us that the Israelis uncovered huge caves near the Israeli-Lebanese border. The caves were, uh, were, were 40 foot. They were drilled with 40 foot bore drilled, you know, mounted on rail cars that they bored these into the mountains. And the Israelis reportedly found enough military weapons and equipment to supply 13 Russian divisions. That's a lot of divisions. 13 Russian divisions plus the war plans for the full-scale invasion of Israel and the simultaneous limited invasion of the United States in order to make us ineffective as they did that. It took the Israelis over five months to move the armor and the equipment out of these caves and to destroy the caves. And they sold a lot of it to the Afghans who were fighting the Russians at the time. Isn't that interesting? Now here's the point. They had all this poised and yet they never did it. Why? Because they couldn't? No. Because it was not time. Listen very careful to me brothers and sisters. There is nothing and I mean absolutely nothing in the concept of human history that does not occur at the exact moment when it's supposed to occur. God has a ticking like a fine-tuned watch. Timepiece. It's ticking, it's ticking, it's ticking, it's ticking. He has all of the events perfectly planned. He has the rapture of his people perfectly timed. He has the physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth physically timed. And he has this battle physically timed, perfectly timed. And he has the moments of your life perfectly timed. Man, doesn't that give you peace? Hey, it's not out of control. God hasn't left the helm. It's all in control. We just need to trust him. Let's move on. As we look at this, you know, some people will write off, especially when they come to verse 4, they begin to write off this, this passage because they see this thing about, you know, they're, they're, he sees horses and he sees horsemen, splendidly clothed, great company, bucklers, shields, handling swords, and they say, this had to be sometime in the past. Well, maybe, but just keep in mind, how, how would Ezekiel describe things to us? in the time in which he lived. How would he say, I saw an M1A1 or A2 Abrams tank blazing across the deserts, and I saw, you know, warthog planes coming down and blowing them out of the sky. He couldn't. He would have no way of doing it. So he speaks in terms, I believe, to which he could relate to. Or there's some history between us and this event that's going to change the whole world landscape. Who knows? Good. You know, maybe we're going back to that age before it's done because all of our systems fail. I think not. I think he has simply described things in the way that he would. And all he's saying is they're coming with their arms. They're coming to wage war. And that's exactly what he's saying. Now, I want you to pay attention. I mentioned this. This is an interesting thing. When he talks about putting hooks in the jaws, 
I want to read something to you. Actually, I came across this in 2006, and I read this all the time. It's just incredible. There's an, uh, an article called Moscow's Mad Gamble. It was in U.S. News and World Report, and it was written by Mort B. Zuckerman, and you may know him. He's one of the editors there. He wrote this article, and he talks about Vladimir Putin's intervention, um, in particular, into the Middle East and into Iran, and how he was helping the Iranians build the Boucher nuclear plant and his interest in that and how he's shipping weapons to them. But he says this, and he says, and Russia has made the threat more real. It sold the nuclear power plant at Bushir to Iran and contracted to sell even more to bring cash into its nuclear industry. As one American diplomat put it, this business is a giant hook in Russia's jaw. Isn't that interesting? These, I'm assuming, non-Christian writers writing an article about events, use a very phrase, right, that Ezekiel used and said, I'm going to put a hook in his jaw and I'm going to bring him out. That just sends chills right up my spine when I read that. Well, who are the other players? Here's one. Verse 5, Persia. Persia. Anybody know who Persia is today? Iran. Do you know when it became Iran? Do you know the story on this? This is really interesting. Persia, until 1935, Iran was called Persia. Okay, until 1935. And in 1935, the Reza Shah, who was the ruler of Persia at that time, under the influence of Hitler and the Nazis, changed the name to Iran. Do you know what Iran literally means? Land of the Aryans. Land of the Aryans. Do you want to know why they're fascinated by Mein Kampf today? Do you know that's one of the top-selling books in Iran today? Mein Kampf. Why? Just because they hate the Jews? Where did that hatred come from? How is it passed on? Interesting. Persia is Iran. Here's an important note, too. And, and if this one doesn't convince you that this is speaking of something where we are today in history, nothing will. Do you know that the only time that Persia is listed in the scriptures as an enemy of the Jews is at this point in this battle? Up to this point, they're an ally. Up to this point, you have guys like Cyrus who releases them from Babylonian captivity and allows them to go back to worship their God. Up to this point, there is no indication that Persia is ever in the scriptures listed as an enemy of Israel until this moment. And here we live in a time when suddenly in what, 1978, with the revolution that took place in Iran and the installation of, of you know, their leadership now that we have there so radical when they suddenly became absolute haters of the nation of Israel, enemies, sworn enemies. Interesting, 1979 rather. Ethiopia, Ethiopia is the next one. Literally, the word is Cush. And translators of a lot of modern translations of the Bible, including New King James Version and the New American Standard, were so confident that Cush is Ethiopia that they changed it to Ethiopia in the translations that you have today. But Ethiopia, as being referred to here, encompasses far more territory than just the present-day nation of Ethiopia. It really includes a large swath of territory south of Egypt in what the world today would consider to be the northern Islamic African region, northern Sudan, Somalia. Isn't that interesting what's going on in Sudan today? You see that beginning to form as well and this, the strengthening of this Islamic stronghold in that region of the world and against Israel. And one day they will join this coalition. Wouldn't be too hard to get them into the boat uh, tomorrow if they wanted to. And then the next one it says, and Libya are with them. That's interesting. Libya is translated as put in the Hebrew. 
And scholars, for the most part, agree that this is the reference to what continues to be modern-day Libya as we know it today. And it's the area located, of course, along the North African coast. And since the overthrow of Libya in the Arab Spring, we've seen a real turn there. Although Libya has always been an enemy of Israel, we've really seen it uh, ramp up since then and, and really becoming very radical during this time, even more radical than it was underneath Gaddafi. And, um, you know, just consider our own experience with the death, death of Ambassador Stevens uh, in that country. All of them, he says, with shield and helmet. In other words, all are coming out to wage war. And it says in verse 6, Gomer and all its troops. Now, some Bible scholars, teachers speculate that Gomer is Germany. I used to hear that years ago, that, that Gomer is really Germany. But ethnologists who study this more accurately identify Gomer as being the Indo-European region of the world, areas where Islam is growing in that region of the world today. Some of those very Eastern Bloc European nations uh, that exist there. My daughter, for her honeymoon, if you'd want to do something like that, but when my one daughter married her husband for their honeymoon, they did a missions trip to Serbia. And they were in a region where Islam was fairly strong. I mean, they had no problems there, but it was in that region. And so that part of the world and heading further east into Eurasia is really what Gomer, I believe, is speaking about. And some also have identified it as being the region of Galatia which uh, would be today part of modern-day Turkey. So somewhere that regional area, if not all of it, is being referred to here. And then he goes on, he says, the house of Tugarma from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. Now, Tugarma has long been identified and accepted as the region that is today Turkey, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. So again, we're back into that Turkish region. And no, Turkey has been the biggest wild card, as I said earlier, in this whole mix. And today, we'd have no doubt that they're playing in this. In fact, again, Prime Minister, one of the articles said, Prime Minister of Turkey now talking about invading Jerusalem in a major world war. So we see, again, all of this building. But again, it says, many people are with you. Now, could that imply that there will be others that are going to play in this war? Yeah, I think it does. I don't think it's just talking about many others from your own country. I think it's speaking about many other nations, may maybe some regional players around there based on what will exist at the time this takes place would be coming to play at that time. Tell you what, we can move on just a little bit. We'll see how far we can get. I, I want to talk about this, though. There are some nations that are missing, some nations that are missing in this list. Anybody see any that you would think would be given in this list? We've had Turkey. We've had you know, that region of North Africa that's hostile. We've seen uh, Russia and her regions. We've Eurasia. We've seen that. We've seen Libya. Who's missing? Iraq's missing, isn't it? Any others? Iraq's one. Saudi Arabia? How about another one? Iran? Yep. Egypt? Oh, not Iran. Persia is Iran. I'm sorry. Syria. Yeah, Syria, right? And I think we had them all. Did we say them? Syria, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Iraq. They're not there. They're not mentioned on here. Now, could they be part of that group the other nations with? Maybe, but they're so significant that one would think that they would have been listed by name as well. So they clearly appear to be absent. So why are they not mentioned? Why aren't they there? Well, possibility number one is maybe they will be a part of that coalition, but they're included in the many peoples with you. Again, I think not. I think they're intentionally left out. Second, it could be that they're not involved because something has happened to preclude their involvement. Maybe the Sunni-Shiite divide and the loathing and fear of political Islam. That exists, you know that? As much as we look into the Islamic world, there's more infighting between the Islamics than there really is between the Islamic and the rest of the world, at least at the moment. And, and to be honest with you, if you study some of this, you'll find out that even nations like Saudi Arabia, 
that prop up some of the groups. I mean, we know there were linkages between Saudi Arabia and Al-Qaeda. And yet at the same time, the Saudis are interesting people because some of their propping up has nothing to do with ideology but all to do with survival. So they play all sides. And they're very afraid. The ruling party there is very afraid of militant kind of Islamic rule-taking route because they'll get deposed. You know, they'll lose their power base. And so that could be a reason that's playing in it. Um, you know, secondly, some of these nations might not be involved because they're incapable of getting involved. I mean, we would look at Iraq a few years ago and say, boy, just after the Iraq war, there's no way they could have been a player in that. And then we saw a little bit of rebuilding. But what's happened today to that region that's affecting most of these players other than Egypt? ISIS. ISIS now is spanning all through that region from Syria through Iraq, right, affecting those regions and, and really making them ineffective players at the moment. So it could mean that, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. But I do know that these nations seem not to be represented, and there's some very plausible reasons why they may not be represented as we move through this. And by the way, there is interesting, in Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1, there's an interesting prophecy that's given. Some would argue that this prophecy has been fulfilled. Uh, some argue that it has not. I'll leave that to you to decide, or maybe time to tell. But it says, the burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. It's interesting. Many scholars who believe that this has not been fulfilled make the argument that Damascus has never gotten to this point. Although Syria itself has gone through periods of time where it has to some degree become a wilderness, it's never gotten to this description, which seems to be describing something more than just being barren. It seems to be describing absolute devastation, that it's completely annihilated. Boy, there have been a couple of times in recent history we looked and thought maybe we're seeing Isaiah 17 playing out. And to be honest with you, I have a bunch of articles that you could look up. I mean, USA Today said in September 9th, they pointed out in 2013 that, you know, there seems to be that there could be some vision of doom in Syria. You know, kind of like this prophecy talks about. A lot of newspapers, even secular ones, started looking at this prophecy because they heard people talking about it and saying, we could see that potentially coming to pass. So I don't know. We don't know what we don't know, but these nations are obviously missing as we get into this. And then as you begin to move into Ezekiel 38, let's see what we can do with this. We won't go far, but let's take a look. This is the actual battle that takes place. It tells us in verse 7, Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. Now, this is interesting. God is now speaking to Gog at this moment and, and the leader of this human coalition, and he tells him to get ready to go. And when he says to him, be a guard for them, in the Hebrew, it literally refers to a place of confinement. A place of confinement. Be a place of confinement for them. Kind of like saying to them, be a prison for them. For who? For these nations that are going to be playing in this alliance with you. In other words, God is, is saying that God's allies won't all be in this because of their free will and choice. That they're going to be in this because they're going to be stuck in it with them. He's going to have them under his tight-fisted grasp. i got to tell you, honestly, there's been no nation in the history, recent history of the world that has done a better job at holding the gun to nations' heads than Russia has. And quite frankly, Putin's doing it again. He's putting the gun to the head. And you know what the gun is that he's using? It's energy. It's energy. You know, I read an article not too long ago that said that Putin is what he would term himself to be, the energy czar of Russia. He's an energy czar. He sees his 
focus, his goal of collecting energy. Do you know today that there's big disputes with Norway, some of the Scandinavian countries, because Russia is now up in the Arctic Circle, laying claim to it, drilling, digging, going all through it, getting underneath, doing stuff. Do you know why? He's after every place he can go to pull up the resources that he wants. He's an energy czar. And oh, by the way, he gets the resources, then he sells them to his neighbors, and he's got these pipelines that flow in particular natural gas. It's a big one for him. He flows the natural gas into his neighboring countries, and then when they don't do what he wants them to do, guess what he does? He turns off the tap. Once you start to freeze, there's a problem there. Now, I think that this is going to play into this battle, because right now he's one of the largest suppliers of natural gas into Europe itself. So you got Europe at odds with Putin, and they full well know that they can't. You, you want to know why the Europeans are not putting all the sanctions on him or being tough with him? We have no excuse, but maybe our excuse is because we know that they won't do it. They don't want to do it because they know that if they get too tough, he's just going to turn off the tap, and, you know, Grandma in Germany is going to freeze over the winter. And so he's got a gun to the head. He does so well. So when we look at that and we hear him saying, be a guard for them, be a place of confinement, be a prison for them, we get the sense that this may very well be playing out as we look at this. And then he goes on in verse 8 and says, after many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountain of, mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. This tells us that the, you know, this invading coalition is going to come across the mountains of Israel. And that makes sense given the composition of this coalition that they would have to come across from the north. They would be coming across the mountainous regions of Israel to come into there. But here it also, we're given the timing of this invasion in this verse. Because when Israel, it says, has been completely regathered in the land, brought back from the sword and gathered from many people. Folks, that has taken place. Ezekiel 37 set the stage for it. It's taken place. They're back in the land. There are only three instances historically and scripturally when the Jews were or will be regathered from the nations. When they returned from Babylonian captivity around 539 B.C. And by the way, that had three subpart returns. Okay, that took place. And then when they returned to Israel and she reformed as a nation after World War II on the 14th of May in 1948. And there's a future regathering after fleeing from Antichrist during the Great Tribulation. And we're certainly not talking about the flight from Antichrist. And we're certainly not talking about the Babylonian captivity. So which one do we have to be talking about? The one that Ezekiel 37 spoke of, which occurred in 1948. So we know the time frame. We have some of the time frame taking place here that we're given. And he also tells us another clue in this. He says here, in the latter years. It's going to occur in the latter years. Now, the latter years is a phrase commonly used throughout Scripture that refers to the last days of human history. When you see that in your Scripture, it should be going, oh, we're switching gears. We're talking about end times events. It's, it's, a, it's a, a word that even the prophets knew when they wrote it. They would know that they were writing about something future toward the end of the age. And that's what it's referring to. So when we look at this, it begins to narrow things down for us, right? We know the return has occurred. We know it's in the latter years. So now we add these two together and we say, wow, we're living in the time frame. We don't know where on that timeline, but we're somewhere in that time frame of the latter years. And then he says, you will come, or sorry, you will send, verse 9, like a storm. That literally means coming powerfully and suddenly like storms, you know, come, come on Israel. In Israel, storms can brew up, especially off the Sea of Galilee, an instant. You know, they're suddenly there. We're beginning to think they do that around here, too. You know, we drove through some nasty stuff coming down. 
And it just kind of came out of nowhere, and then just as quick it went. But that's the idea. It's going to be sudden, it's going to be massive, and it's going to be overwhelming. Because he says on in verse 9, you know, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Literally, it means they're going to come with overwhelming force when they come. You know, Israel has always been outnumbered. You know, look at it. I mean, and yet she's won. The Six Days War, she was outnumbered. The Yom Kippur War, she was outnumbered. And she still won. But this idea expresses here that when this happens, it's going to be much worse. You know, when you look back to the Yom Kippur War, you look to the Six Days War, even if you talk to the Jews, they will say, God intervened. But in reality, they believe that their military was that good. The sense we get here is when this invasion occurs, Israel is going to be overtaken overwhelmed to such a point that no matter how good her military is, she stands no reasonable chance of success. But she will succeed because God himself is going to intervene powerfully. And not only will they know, not only will the enemies know, but the world will know. And the world will still choose to ignore, but the world will know. God will make himself clear in this battle. It won't be attributed to anything that the Israelis possessed in terms of equipment or training that will bring them success. It will be God alone. And he makes that clear because he moves on and he says this. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. You know, we're going to learn shortly that the Lord actually stirs these ideas in Gog. You know, He's stirring him to do this. And a lot of people argue this event can't be taking place now because Israel isn't living in a place that's, that they're dwelling safely in the land, you know, without walls, without bars, without gates. They suggest that it speaks more of a time when Antichrist is in power and protecting Israel in those first three and a half years when they'll have some protection or a sense of it. I tell you this, number one, Israel is dwelling without walls. And she is dwelling without bars. Do you realize that? She is. She's dwelling without walls and bars. You can come and go. I understand that there's barriers, but, but it's not in the days of Ezekiel when he's talking about these massive kind of in fortresses. She's not hunkered into a fortress. It's an open nation in so many ways. People come and go all the time. It is an open nation in that sense. And secondly, the sense of the Hebrew isn't so much a literal state of peace and security, but it describes a state of relative peace and security. And you know what? Israel has a lot of confidence in her ability today. You know, you don't, you don't hear the Israelis running around. In fact, Israelis will tell you, you want to be safe? Come to Israel. We have enemies all around us, and we're still fine. There's a confidence that they have about where they are. And I would argue that most Israelis would tell you that they consider themselves living in peace and safety, that they're kept in that. Now, maybe the scholars are right. Maybe this is describing something that's going to change, and there's going to be even greater peace. I don't know. But I would tell you that there is no reason to take this off the table today because of that wording. And then it goes on and it says this, to take plunder, it's going to give us the reason. I'm actually going to end here, but I, I do want to get to this tonight. It says to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Now here we're told the ultimate motivation of this coalition that's going to take place. This is what it is. It's not about politics, not at its heart, at least not for Gog. Remember, this is who he's talking to. He's not talking to Persia. He's not talking to Cush. 
He's not talking to, you know, Libya. He's not talking to him. He's talking to Gog in this moment. And he's saying, this is what you're coming for. You are coming for booty. And you're going to bring people with you. Now, listen, many of the players may be coming for political reasons. They may be coming because of the Islamic hate for the Jews. And Gog just happens to be their source of being able to do that. But Gog himself is not coming because he has a political bone to pick with the Israelis. He's coming, exactly as it says here, against these people because they've acquired things that he wants. They've acquired livestock, they've acquired goods, and they dwell in the midst of a land. He wants the booty. And it comes up again and again in this passage. He's coming to take booty. Here's quite literally the hook in Gog's jaw. He wants stuff. Isn't that the heart of war? James tells us that, right? It's the heart of war. You lust, you want, you can't have, so you take. You war amongst one another for that. And that's exactly what he's going to do in this moment. You know, it is a recognized fact that Israel is quickly becoming one of the richest nations in the world in terms of its material wealth. She is. You know, prior to 1948, Israel was, was a barren wasteland. If you look at pictures, I wish I had to, I should have brought the pictures I'd used. But if you look at pictures before 1948, when it was under the Arabs who just kind of nomadically controlled the land, and you look at it today, it, you couldn't believe the difference. Just incredible. And, and she's blessed with natural resources. She's blessed with vegetation. I mean, a lot of the fruits and vegetables that you guys eat come from Israel. It comes from there. I take this, and this is not a sales pitch. Somebody sold me these years ago. I take them, but it helps my health. But I take something called Juice Plus, a little capsule. Okay, he's a Juice Plus salesman. No, I'm not. But I take these things, and I didn't realize it, but these things are kind of granulated fruits and vegetables, and they're all manufactured in Israel. Because she's a leading producer. She outproduces many nations in the world for this kind of stuff. How does that happen in tiny little Israel in the middle of a barren wasteland? Because God blessed the land. Because God said that they would prosper. And now they're prospering and they're, they're rapidly developing these things. But there's one thing that she is developing right now that I personally believe is going to be the hook. The absolute hook in all of it. You know what she's developing? Natural gas. Bought into natural gas. In fact... In a joint venture with Syria, Israel and Syria, uh, not Syria, I'm sorry, Cyprus. Israel and Cyprus will control one of the largest natural gas fields in the Middle East, and it's in the Mediterranean. And in fact, if you remember back in, in uh, yeah, 1912, in 2012, uh, Vladimir Putin made a visit. It was a historic visit because I believe up to that time no Russian president had visited Israel, went to Jerusalem, sat down with Benny Netanyahu, the president of Israel, and they had all kinds of discussion. You know what the word, the primary discussion was? Cut me in on your natural gas deal. Cut me in on your natural gas deal. To which Netanyahu says, not on your life. And they said, no, this is all secondary. This is, this is speculative, okay? I heard this from somebody who heard this, from, but from a reliable source that when Putin went home, he was furious because he wanted in on it. He wanted in on it. I would argue to watch every move that Putin makes. He's not trying to restore the Soviet Union. He's making moves that posture him to get the resources that he wants, that he knows that if he controls resources, he controls the world. He controls the juggler of the world. When you look at the portion that he took in the Ukraine, that region that he took, and now the fighting in the Ukraine, have you seen him move to take all of Ukraine? No. He wants a land bridge. He wants a safe land bridge between Russia and that portion of Ukraine that has given him those ports. And 
those oil fields that exist in that region so that he can move that stuff. And I believe that Putin or whoever his successor will be or somebody down the road at some point in time is going to be very interested in what Israel is again doing in that region. Now, at the same time, if you were to study this a little bit, you can look it up in the paper, you'll find that Turkey's very interested in this too. Because Turkey is also one of the suppliers into Europe. And oh, by the way, that's one of Putin's concerns because by 20, I believe it's 2017, those fields in the Mediterranean will be producing massive quantities of natural gas that, that, that Israel and Cyprus are already trying to work deals with the European Union to send into Europe. Do you know what that will do to Putin? You know what that will do to Russia? It could literally implode their economy because suddenly they're not dependent any longer on Putin's gas from Gascon. They're going to take it from the Israelis instead. He can't let that happen. And Turks are similarly interested, but do you know who they're pressuring? They're pressuring right now is Cyprus because they don't like them anyways. Right? This is History 101 paraphrased. They, they're in a, in a tiff with them anyhow, but they're really pushing because what they want is control of that share that they have of those natural gas fields. But by 2017, this is going to be up and running. I'm not telling you that this war is coming before 2017, but I am saying that the ante is going up pretty significantly by 2017. Putin already has his eyes on Israel. He already has his eyes on these things, and it could very well be the hook that's being set in the jaw of the Russians in this coalition to come and take booty. And oh, by the way, let's bring the Iranians along with us because they hate the Israelis anyways, and we'll come across the mountains and we'll do our thing. I'm going to end it at this point. Unless you want to stay till like two, we could do that. That'd be all right. I love teaching. I, don't, I could teach all night. It's okay with me. I love prophecy and I love to teach it. Uh, but I hope that this has given you a taste for the time in which you live. Go home and read the rest of it. The rest of it kind of describes how the battle unfolds in particular chapter 39 really begins to describe it. Pay attention to what God does versus what the people do. And you will find very clearly that God is the one that intervenes and he destroys these armies. These, it doesn't say he destroys these nations. It says he destroys these armies that come against them. And oh, by the way, he sends fire into the coastlands, which could imply that there are nations or those nations, and they do suffer some things from it, but there's no indication that those nations are destroyed. And that's why I made the point earlier that when you see these names come up again later in the book of Revelation, you don't have to be confused to say, well, this must be one and the same. No, it just means that they're players again at some point, and some of them are. And that wouldn't be surprising, would it? I mean, look at if it's Gog and Magog, are the Russians. They've been playing in history for quite some time now, and they keep coming up, as do the Germans, as do the, you know, the Middle Eastern states. So we, we see this repetition of history to some degree. But I think there's enough in this for us to, to know where we live in this time. So here's my challenge to you tonight. What do we do with this? How then shall we live? You know, how should we live knowing this? Do we live looking at every event that occurs and say, I wonder if this invasion is going to happen tomorrow? Do we look and say, you know what? I see the storm clouds building. I see the, Jesus talks about that. He, he challenges the Pharisees because they're so blind. And he says, if you looked at the sky and you saw the, 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 the color of the sky, you know what was coming tomorrow because you paid attention to it, but you don't, you're so blind you don't even see what's happening. I think that to a degree we're living in a generation today that doesn't see what happens just be simply because they've ignored the prophetic. And so they're going on with their lives, they're doing the routine of their lives, and nothing wrong with that, but they're living their lives with a complete disregard for Jesus in their lives, as though I have time to catch up. We might not have time to catch up. And what we have done, what we have, what we have given to him, what we have offered to him, I'm not talking about our money or our resource, I'm talking about with our lives. 
what we have offered to him, when that day comes and it's over for us and it's finished, it'll be finished. And we could stand wishing we could go back and if I only would have known, but he's told us. He's told us, watch for these signs. You'll know by these signs. Watch these things. No man knows the day or the hour, but you'll know by these signs that you're in the window. How then do we live? I told you how I choose to live my life. May I encourage you to do the same thing. Do it right here in this community. This is awesome. I'm blessed to be here tonight. What, seeing what God has done here is just, you guys, you guys should just be blessed out of your socks. God is doing a work here, but he isn't doing the work to give you a facility. He's doing the work to bring you into this facility to send you out to your neighbors and your friends, and not just to bring them to church, but to bring them to Jesus. By the way you're living your life, by the way you're sharing your life with them, by, by the love that you're showing to them in a time when this is becoming a pretty loveless world. That word's used a lot today about relationships and love. But the true meaning of love, Jesus gave it to us. And he gave us his spirit, who the greatest gift that he produces in us is what? Love, right? All the other things that are mentioned, joy, peace, kindness. You know what? Those things are just the aspects of love being worked out, I believe. But love is it. Love is what he produces. Love above all the gifts of the Spirit. Love. Love with Christ's love. Love Christ so that you can love with Christ's love. But walk out that love because as you do, you will touch people around you and they will come to know the Savior. I promise you that. Why don't we stand? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight. Lord, your word is sweet, it's true, and Lord, it is honey in our mouths. And Lord, I pray tonight that your people are encouraged, they're challenged, and Lord, yeah, maybe a little uncomfortable, uh, just realizing, you know, the timeline and where we are, and yet, Lord, seeing their own lives. Lord, I pray for each and every one of them that your grace would abound, but Lord, that your spirit would challenge them as well. Challenge me that we would walk out this walk as you would have us walk it, Lord. By the power of your spirit, not our flesh. By the power of your spirit. By the truth of your word. Taking our stand, Lord, for you in this world in which we live. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we now ask you to seal this word to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.